I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And this morning we will be hearing God's word from Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon him once again in prayer and ask for his help to guard and guide us by his Holy Spirit. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is easy to step into this pulpit and desire to sound impressive and knowledgeable, to draw attention to myself instead of Christ. And so I pray that you would not let that happen, that you would speak and your people would delight in you. That as John the Baptist said, so it would be true of me that I would decrease that Christ might increase. I pray that you would work in every heart here this morning by the power of your spirit and word to call people into Christ and then to increasingly conform them to Christ. This will only happen if you do this work for us. And so we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. The author of Hebrews continues, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. When J.I. Packer, who is one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, was a young man at Oxford, he attended a meeting of the Christian Union and he heard a sermon that finally opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. He said, the scales fell from my eyes and I saw the way in. And so through the preaching of the word, J.I. Packer came into saving faith. However, soon after he got caught up in a so-called Christian group on the campus of Oxford, Oxford that nearly led him to despair of his newfound salvation. For this group taught a form of perfectionism. The essence of their teaching was that Christians would eventually reach a point, usually through an intense experience of crisis, when they would no longer then struggle with sin. In other words, they believed Christians could be morally perfect now. The problem for Packer was that when he looked at his life, it didn't look a whole lot like perfection And no matter how much he strived and devoted himself to God, he couldn't reach this perfection. Because of this, Packer slowly descended into despair until he discovered the writings of John Owen on indwelling sin and J.C. Ryle on holiness, which helped him understand the gospel and Christian experience in light of the whole counsel of God. Now, it isn't difficult to see how perfectionism can tunnel into the fortress of Christian theology and teaching. For the gospel triumphantly announces that by faith in Christ, you are a new creation. Paul declares, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. And this newness includes death to and freedom from sin. So Paul again teaches, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so Paul pronounces, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. This newness also includes purification from sin, total cleansing. This has been an anthem throughout Hebrews. We have heard that Christ has put away sin, that he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Even in the text I just read for you, we hear, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We know that Christ's death 
has sin-killing, conscious-purifying, soul-perfecting power. And yet, if we're all honest, when we look at our own lives in the spiritual mirror, we, like Packer, will inevitably think, this doesn't look a whole lot like perfection. So how do you reconcile the description of perfection you hear with the reflection of sin that you see? That's what I'm going to attempt to answer this morning because I believe the author gives us the answer in verse 14. In other words, my aim is to help you obtain a biblical understanding of sanctification in the Christian life in order to guard you from despair on the one hand and in order to bolster your progress and joy in the faith on the other hand. So toward that end, I have three points regarding sanctification and then I'll conclude with two ways this should shape your understanding of sanctification in the Christian life. Number one, we see in our text that sanctification is effected by Christ's sacrifice. Now, as we'll soon see, there are two aspects of sanctification. But fundamentally, to be sanctified means you have been set apart. You are holy. Christian sanctification, therefore, means you have been set apart from worldliness and sin and the kingdom of the devil, and you are now separated unto God. You are no longer common or profane. You are holy because you now belong to the holy God. Now, what Hebrews teaches us is that this sanctification, this setting apart, happens because of Christ's sacrifice. The emphasis of chapter 9 has been the superior purifying power of Christ's new covenant offering to all of the old covenant offerings that came before. And this is reiterated in the first part of chapter 10. So in verses 1 through 4, we are again reminded that the Old Covenant law, here referring specifically to the Mosaic system of sacrifices and cleansings, was not intended to save and wash people from their sins. It was a shadow and foreshadow of this salvation. It was not the substance and fulfillment of salvation. So these animal sacrifices could not perfect you. They could not ultimately atone for your sin and wash it all away. They could not bring sinners near to God. The very fact they had to be repeated, which again we see in verses 1 through 3 and verse 11, proved that they were ineffective for this purpose. And they were ultimately ineffective in this sense because, as verse 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So as we have learned in Hebrews, the inadequacy of the old covenant system is found in the fact that these sacrifices were of animal blood, they had to be offered repeatedly, and they were offered in the earthly tabernacle or sanctuary. 
And this has been contrasted with the sufficiency and efficacy of the new covenant sacrifice, which consisted of Christ's blood, which only had to be offered once, and which was offered in the heavenly tabernacle or sanctuary. And this is reiterated once again in verses 5 through 10. But to reinforce this point, the author offers us another Old Testament scripture to support his point, which is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 40 is another psalm of David. And as the author of Hebrews always does, he takes these messianic psalms, these psalms of David, which are pointing to the promised king who was to come, and he attributes these words as if they were Jesus' very words, since Jesus is the messianic king who would come from the line of David. Now, in its original context, David is acknowledging that what God desires of his kings and indeed of all of his people is not just ritual sacrifices. As if God commanded animals to be sacrificed because that's just what God delights in above all else. No, what he really wants is a heart and life that is devoted to obeying his will. So in Psalm 40, there's probably an allusion to King Saul. You might remember the story in 1 Samuel 13, when Saul doesn't wait for Samuel to come, and Saul himself offers the burnt offerings and peace offerings, which he wasn't allowed to do. And so Samuel finally comes, and he rebukes Saul, ultimately saying, Saul, God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants you to actually do what he has commanded you to do. Psalm 40 is making this same point. And the author of Hebrews takes these words and he applies them to Jesus. Essentially hearing Jesus say to the Father, Lord, I, I know that what you want is, isn't ultimately all of these sacrifices. And so you have prepared for me a body to come into this world to actually do what you want, which is to do your will. Clearly the author here is thinking of the incarnation when God the Son took on human flesh and became the God-man. And so even here we see that the incarnation, like all of God's works, is a Trinitarian work. The Father planned to send the Son into the world and the Father prepared the body for the Son to come into the world. The Son willingly took on human flesh and came into the world to offer His body. And we know from the Gospels that the Holy Spirit is the one who comes upon Mary that she would conceive and He knits that body together in the womb. There is not one work that has been done in this world that was not the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the author's argument is that in this psalm, we yet again see an allusion to the fact that God's will for salvation was always to do away with this sacrificial system under the old covenant and establish the new covenant in Christ. Jesus was always God's will for salvation. And so Jesus came into the world to do the Father's will and accomplish salvation. 
He did so by perfectly obeying God's will in life, which eventually brought him to the point of death on the cross where he offered his perfect life unto the Lord. For the cross, as Paul tells the Philippians, was the ultimate culmination of Christ's obedience to God's will. So as we learned in chapter 9, Christ's death on the cross, the shedding of His blood, inaugurated the new covenant, it atoned for sin, and it purified God's people. All of this fulfilled God's promises in Jeremiah 31, which we heard quoted in chapter 8, and which the author again quotes here in verses 16 and 17. Because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, we are forgiven once-for-all of all of our sins. And because we are forgiven, there never needs to be another offering for sin. Never. There is nothing else that has to happen for Christians to be forgiven of their sin. Now, if you've been here listening to this series through Hebrews, you're thinking, we've heard all of this already. Why does the author repeat all of this in chapter 10 when he's just said it all in chapter 9? Well, first, because repetition is always helpful and necessary. We are not the best listeners and learners. We need to hear it again and again. Second, he's strengthening his point with yet another Old Testament scripture that supports his argument. But third and primarily, because he takes what he has argued for objectively in chapter 9 and he makes it subjective in chapter 10. What I mean is that in chapter 9, the author has explained this is how salvation works. In chapter, in chapter 10, he's now bringing it home. He's saying, this works for you. See, saving faith isn't just believing Jesus saves sinners. Saving faith is believing Jesus saves me, a sinner. And so we read in chapter 10, verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus. He's saying to the Hebrews and to you and to me, everything I have explained, this is true for you. This is not a hypothetical salvation. This is an effectual salvation. But at the same time, he establishes that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. In other words, your sanctification, this setting apart unto God, was purchased by the cross of Christ. Your sanctification, as much as your justification, depends fully upon Christ's righteousness and atoning death. His sacrifice sanctified you. For His death to sin and to Satan and to the world became your death to sin and Satan and the world by faith. His resurrection to new life with God becomes your resurrection with a new life to God through faith. Christ's death is what separated you from the world and set you apart for God. His offering made the unholy holy. And so we learn yet again that every spiritual blessing imaginable is found in Christ 
and it was purchased by Christ on the cross. There is not one aspect of salvation, one piece or part that is yours outside of Christ. There is no aspect of salvation, not one little piece or part that is yours apart from Christ crucified. So when Paul tells the Corinthians that he has decided to know nothing among them except Christ crucified, Paul's not saying, I'm just going to focus with you on one part of the gospel. For Paul, knowing Christ crucified is the whole thing. That is the gospel. Everything from Genesis 1-1 was leading to the cross. And everything that happens afterward, going all the way to Revelation 22, 21, and into eternity, that is all flowing out of the cross. So it is right for Paul to say, what I need to know among you is Christ crucified. And that is really for Paul saying, among you I'm preaching the whole counsel of Christ. You have been set apart because Christ was slain for you. And therefore, you are not only justified by faith in Christ, you are sanctified by faith in Christ. Sanctification is affected by Christ's sacrifice. Number two, therefore, sanctification is definitive. As I mentioned earlier, there's, there's two aspects of sanctification. The primary way we think about it is as an ongoing process of growth in holiness and godliness. And that is an aspect of sanctification, which I will explain. But sanctification is first a definitive, decisive, once-for-all reality. Notice again verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Their sanctification is described as a completed work. And notice again the first half of verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. That again is a completed work. Therefore... Every Christian, everyone who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ is already 100% sanctified in this sense. If you are a Christian, you have been set apart. And this is true because you are 100% united to Christ and 100% belong to Christ as you receive him by faith. While Christians will grow in their communion with Jesus, they will never grow in their union with Jesus. While they will grow in becoming like Christ, they will never grow in belonging to Christ. So in Acts chapter 20, Paul refers to Christians as those who are sanctified. To say sanctified is just another way to say Christian. And in Acts 26, verse 18, Paul recounts once again how Jesus called him and told Paul to proclaim the gospel that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there again we hear sanctified, synonym for Christian. And we hear again they are sanctified only by faith in Christ. 
So Paul even writes to the Christians in Corinth. And if you've read that letter, you know the Corinthians are dysfunctional, very sinfully flawed Christians. And he calls them, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So it really frustrates me when we describe certain Christians as, oh, what a saint, as if a saint is a super Christian. A saint is a Christian. Just means someone who is holy in God. You're a Christian, you're a saint. And in that verse, notice again, therefore, that sanctification is in Christ. This is why definitive sanctification is also referred to sometimes as positional sanctification. The fundamental idea is that when you become a Christian, you now have a new spiritual residence and identity. You are no longer in Adam, meaning Adam is no longer your spiritual representative. You are in Christ. He is your representative. There are several other biblical ways to describe this spiritual positional change. Peter says you have been called out of darkness into light. Other places describe it as moving from death to life. From being a citizen of the kingdom of the devil to a citizen of the kingdom of God. From being a child of God's wrath to now a child of God's love. So the idea is that you have a new home, a new status, a new identity that is found in Christ. And because you are in Christ, which again is a spiritual, not a spatial reality, now God looks upon you as he looks upon Jesus. You are viewed in God's eyes as righteous, holy, and pure because Jesus is righteous, holy, and pure. He belongs to you, you belong to Him. So in this way, you are spiritually, positionally sanctified. So the Christian life is always lived within the sphere of salvation. You are God's child now because you have been adopted into His family and that never changes. Why is this important to understand? It's important to understand because it helps you view your ongoing struggle with sin in the proper context. For the Christian, as I'll get to momentarily, still sins. And this can lead us to great discouragement. But we have to understand that when the Christian sins and then confesses that sin... What is happening is not you've sinned and now you've lost salvation. You confess sin and now you regain salvation. Or that you're going in and out of grace. Or you're losing grace and now you've got to fill it back up. That is not what we're talking about. It's not going back and forth between wrath and love, darkness and light. Not being God's child, now being God's child. Going from unforgiveness into forgiveness. Your position and status are fixed and unchangeable, and so your salvation is immovable. 
The Christian life is not like the little mermaid as she plucks flower petals saying, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not. For the Christian, even when you sin, every petal you pick is, He loves me. That does not shift even for a second. So think of this. My children do not stop being my children when they disobey me. As if when they're obeying me, yes, you're my son or daughter. And you disobey me, you're not my son or daughter anymore. No, I have to discipline my children, but that interaction is always one of parent and child. Or imagine if one of my kids ran away. My home does not stop being their home because they've run away. They don't have a new address. Now, they're not experiencing the warmth, the comfort, and safety of their home, but it's still their home. So it is with Christ. When you struggle with sin, your communion with Christ can be disrupted, but your union with Christ cannot be. Your citizenship, your sonship, your status are fixed. In the story of the prodigal son, when the son leaves the father, he didn't actually stop being the son. He didn't cease to be forgiven. Doesn't cease to be loved. Doesn't cease to be justified. You don't cease to be sanctified. For sanctification is definitive. But the third point is that sanctification is also progressive. It's positional it's also progressive. It's once for all, but it's also ongoing. And this is why perfectionism is not actually biblical, even though the Bible says in one sense you're already perfect. Perfectionism is only believing the first half of Hebrews 10, 14. But verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now in verse 10, the, the Greek for sanctification was in a tense that communicates completed work. But here in verse 14, sanctification is given in a tense that communicates an ongoing process of work. So remember what we've learned so far in Hebrews regarding new covenant promises. While Christ has inaugurated the new covenant and those promises are sure and they are ours, we don't have them yet in full. In other words, we haven't received the fullness of our inheritance. This will happen when Christ returns to save those who are eagerly waiting for him as we heard back in chapter 9. Therefore, it is true to say of the Christian, he is sanctified and he is being sanctified. He's saved and he's being saved. Salvation is something we have and at the same time something we are waiting for. So positional sanctification means you are now in Christ and progressive sanctification means you don't yet fully look like Christ. So progressive sanctification is really becoming what you already are in Jesus. Think of another children's story, the, the story of the jungle book. 
Mowgli is a boy who's raised by wolves and he acts like an animal. But at the very end, Mowgli leaves the jungle to go become a citizen of the human village. Now at that moment, his position has changed. He is now part of the village and not the jungle. But it's not as if he's going to know how to act like a member of the village right away. He's got to learn how to act like a boy and not like a wolf. And so it is when we are adopted into God's family that we now have to learn how to live like a member of God's family. When we become a citizen of heaven, we now have to learn to live according to the laws of heaven. When babies are born, they are fully human, but they are not yet fully mature. And they have to grow and learn to live like humans live. Their status isn't ever changing, but their ability to live as they are is growing. And so the Christian is a new creation, but now the Christian life is learning how to walk in this newness of life. He has been forgiven for and set free from sin, but he still needs to learn how to put away sin and live as one who is forgiven and free. He's died to sin, but he still has to learn how to put sin to death. If this weren't the case, Paul's letters would all be a lot shorter than they are. Because Paul's letters often begin with several declarations, this is who you are. You are alive. You are free. You are forgiven. You are new. You are clean. But he doesn't stop there. He then always has to go on to say, now put away all that old stuff and put on the new stuff. You're free. Now Stop acting like you're a slave to sin. You're alive. Stop acting like you're dead. Because Paul is very realistic. In Romans chapter 7, he understands Christians still deal with indwelling sin. We still do things we don't want to do. And in Galatians chapter 5, he says the Christian life is a war between the desires of the sinful flesh and the desires of the Holy Spirit. He understands this reality. And all of this confirms that Paul, like the author of Hebrews, understands that the Christian is perfected and still in need of perfecting. Therefore, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It's a process. It's an ongoing work which is different than how the catechism defines justification, which is an act of God's free grace, not a work of God's free grace. Because justification, God declares it, it's done, nothing more needs to happen. But sanctification is an ongoing work of God in you where you're more enabled to die to sin and live to righteousness than you were at the moment that you were converted and brought from death to life. There's no growth in justification. There's a lot of growth in sanctification. You are becoming what you already are. Which brings me in closing to how this helps us understand our own Christian life. Number one, it helps you understand that it's your ongoing sanctification 
that evidences the effectiveness of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Now, my aim in this point is to guard you both from despair and from complacency. I'm trying to guard you from despair because if you think if the evidence that Christ's sacrifice was effective for you is that you are now perfect, your only logical conclusion is going to be, it must have not worked for me because I'm not perfect. In other words, if you don't understand the progressive aspect of sanctification, your ongoing battles with sin will tempt you to despair of Christ's cross. For we have seen that Christ's sacrifice does affect salvation. It does purify. It does atone. It does perfect. But the evidence of that effectiveness is not found in present perfection. Your status before God is perfect but your moral condition is not yet perfect therefore you know that someone has been perfected in Christ not by signs of moral perfection but by signs of moral progress which should lead us to be very patient not only with ourselves but with one another you should not be holding others to a standard that God is not holding them to. We should long for perfection. We should rejoice in progress. Christians grow. They have not yet arrived. So you're not looking for perfection in yourself or in anyone else to know who's a Christian. Remember what Peter commands. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So don't despair when you see that your sanctification is still happening and that sin is still a struggle for you. Be patient, not only with yourself, but with one another. But don't be complacent, because there should be progress. Idleness and laziness are not signs of saving faith and sanctification. God has perfected for all time those who are actually being sanctified so if you're not being sanctified there's no confidence that you've been perfected in other words sanctification is a fight and so what you're looking for is you need to keep fighting it's a race you need to keep running now the ones who win the race are not those who cross the finish line first. So speed is not essential for this race. Slow runners who finish still win. Finishing is all that matters, which has been the Hebrews' emphasis throughout this letter. He hasn't written to the Hebrews to say, can you guys just run faster? He writes to them pleading, can you please just keep running and don't give up. He says they have need of endurance, not of performance enhancers. So if your sanctification is ongoing, even if it is slow or sporadic or slower and more sporadic than someone else's, you may know that Christ's once-for-all sacrifice was effective for you. Second and finally... This helps us understand that Christian confession 
is a celebration of Christ's victory in the face of our many defeats. I know that I've mentioned this many times in the past, but people keep asking me this question, so I'm going to keep answering it. If repetition was important for the author of Hebrews to the Hebrews, it's important for us as well. There is a danger and a temptation to take the spiritual activities that we are called to do as the outworking of our salvation and flip them over in our mind so we start to think of them as the causes of our salvation. And so even with something like confessing sins, which is an outflow of salvation, we can be tempted to think, now, this is actually causing my salvation. That's not right. And I also will often hear the question, if Christ has paid for my sins on the cross and I am totally forgiven, why do I need to keep asking for forgiveness? Now I want to be clear again, therefore, that we confess sin not out of fear or uncertainty about whether or not we're forgiven. We, we don't confess, as I said earlier, because we're leaving the sphere of salvation and forgiveness when we sin, and we need confession to bring us back in. No, we confess because we're actually confident in Christ's sacrifice and the forgiveness that is ours because of it. Christian confession is an expression of confidence in Jesus. At least it's supposed to be. So John assures in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no question in John's mind of what happens when we confess because that forgiveness, that cleansing has already been secured on the cross. So Christian confession is not moving back and forth between darkness and light. It's actually how you continue to live in the light. Confession is an activity of spiritual sight, not of spiritual darkness. Because you can actually see sin for what it is, and you can see Christ for who He is. If you're still in darkness, you don't see any of that, and you're not confessing sins. Confession is sight, not blindness. And so we understand that Christian confession is not affecting forgiveness. It's not earning forgiveness. Confession is simply how you keep embracing forgiveness. Christian confession is not cowering in defeat. It is celebrating Christ's victory which overcomes all of our defeats. So even when we come to the Lord's table, which we will in a moment, we are not coming in fear. We are coming in faith. We are coming mourning and confessing sin. But even more so, we are coming rejoicing in and celebrating Christ's victory. For His sacrifice has effected our salvation. He has provided the perfect righteousness God requires and He has taken away our sin once for all. So Christian, know that you have been sanctified in Christ and you are being sanctified in Christ. Long for perfection, but rejoice in progress. 
fight sin by faith, but keep that faith fixed on Jesus and not on how well you're fighting. And when you do sin, confess with confidence, celebrating the the victory of Christ, which is truly greater than all of your defeats. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to be merciful to us by convicting us of sin and at the same time pointing us once again to our once-for-all salvation in Jesus. I pray that if there are any here who are still living in darkness, that now would be the moment where you sanctify them, where you call them out of darkness into light, that they would see Jesus by faith, and embrace all that He is and all that He has done for them. And I pray for those who are sanctified in Christ that You would continue to sanctify them. That You would give them grace to keep fighting sin and to keep trusting Christ alone for their salvation. It is in His name we pray. Amen.